teenager was quite rebellious because I didn't want to go to university. Too much of a rebel, too much of a rebel to stay in academia. For me, schools, especially back then, did not encourage or harness creativity or innovation. I would say that I had more self-confidence when I walked in those doors at 19 than I did probably at 30. She said to me, she said, are you sure you don't want to just stay at home and be a housewife? You know, within my first couple of years, I was told, for example, that I dressed too loudly. And I got to 40 and I just thought, I'm not taking this anymore. <laughs> I just thought, I'm not taking it. Like, I know my stuff. It doesn't matter how good you are in your role. If you cannot build relationships with people and get people on your side, it's game over. Me and social media have got a strange relationship. Isn't that life, though? A lot of life is there is a lot more middle ground and a lot more that we have in common and unfortunately when it comes to social media sometimes we pick on that one little thing that we think is different where that person didn't get us so they didn't understand us and then we're going to go for that person that's what's wrong with it you know there are so many lessons i'd probably say and welcome to everyday leadership a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And today I have the pleasure of just having a conversation with um, friend of mine who worked together on the Black Thailand Awards. She's a bit of judging. She has a long list of things that she does from an exec director to founder of um, Reboot Global Limited, her company, to author of Smashing Stereotypes, how to get ahead when you're the only in the room, to what, public speaker, board trustee, mentor so much more there's a lot to my wonderful guest Sharon Miller today and it is an absolute pleasure just to spend some time getting to know you a little bit better on the podcast welcome to everyday leadership thank you for having me Shope. thank you so much and I know um I think we've been trying to get this in the diary for a while and I've been sort of like running away I don't really like these conversations about myself and, you know, for whatever reason, we'll, maybe we'll get into that today. Maybe, Shopper, you'll uncover it. But, um, yeah, I do, I, you know, and that, that list of things uh, that you read out there, sometimes I feel as though I'm doing too much. And actually, this year is going to be the year of people will start to see me curate down uh, the things that I'm, I'm doing. Uh, and we'll maybe get into the reasons why. But, yeah. So I think if we step into that then, doing too much, a long list of things that you have done in the past. When you go out and you do this talks and different bits and pieces, how do you like people to introduce you? What is the thing that you want people to know about Cheryl that's really important for you? Um, I think there's something about I'm I'm very very passionate about helping people and organisations fulfil their true potential. So that's why that's probably why the one the one or two things that have been consistent throughout whether it be my corporate career and even pre my corporate career in terms of the things I wanted to do 
um, helping individuals, so mentoring, coaching, mentoring I've been doing for a very long time, whether it be mentoring startup businesses through Prince's Trust or now mentoring people like in their careers or whatever, I've been doing that for a while. Um, and then also always looking for how organisations can improve. Again, that is something that's been a constant since the day I got into corporate, probably much to the um, frustration of some of the managers that I've worked for in the past. So apologies if they're, if they're listening. But yeah, always this passion to like improve things. And so obviously in the work that I'm doing now, especially in the space of uh, inclusion, diversity and equity, that is around, you know, helping organisations create environments where individuals can thrive. So it kind of brings the two together. And actually some people have been saying to me, you know, maybe this is your calling. Maybe this is what all of those years of corporate were all kind of like leading to. But that's the that's definitely where my heart is at the moment. Um, it's bringing those two together. So trying to get the best out of individuals and organisations, creating workplaces where people can do their best. Yeah. Still back to before corporate, younger Cheryl, teenage Cheryl. What were you like then? <laughs> I laugh because teenage Cheryl was quite rebellious, I would say, actually. I think, I don't know whether people would be surprised at that. Um, yeah, quite rebellious, um, or some would say uh, naughty almost, but it, it was more rebellious. It was, it was rebellion against the status quo, always, always rebelling against the status quo, always questioning why, which actually that started much, much younger, like my, um, my aunt's. Uh, in particular, so raised, you know, very big family. My mom was one of ten, right? But when I was very little, um, two things I was known for. The one was like smiling and laughing a lot, always laughing. But the second thing was always asking why. You know, why is it done? Why? But why? And that maybe then feeds into this, um, you know, this hunger for things to be better, you know, to be done better, to improve what's done. And so as a teenager often rebelling against things that just, you know, things in school, for example, that to me seemed nonsensical or there didn't seem to be a point to it. Yeah, I was, some people would say I was a little bit tasty, to be honest, if, if I was being uh, honest. So, yeah, I would say a little bit a little bit rebellious against authority, rebellious against the status quo. Yeah. Was that? Some people might be surprised at that. I'm, I'm surprised at that. <laughs> <laughs> That was about what I was expecting for you. And I'm curious then, was that, I'm going to call it the, the rebellious nature or curious nature, was that nurtured or was that tried to be quelled and shut down a bit? Because when I think back, especially being a, a younger kid, like, you know, she just got a statement, um, children were, were seen, not heard. Mm. But then you have that rebellious nature or the curious nature asking why. How was that nurtured or not nurtured? coming up for you then i would say that um and i think when you think about like the school system um school and then college i would say generally within those environments it was definitely um quashed really you know people try to sort of like stifle it that's probably why i was always in trouble i make it sound as i was really really bad i wasn't doing anything like you know i wasn't burning any places down or anything like that (laughs) you know i was like not wanting to wear the uniform correctly and you know just kind of always having that rebellious edge but I would say yes for me schools especially back then did not encourage that kind of um did not encourage or harness 
you know, creativity or innovation or, you know, wouldn't really delve into, well, why is this child, you know, why does this child behave in this way? What are their strengths, et cetera? The, the only exception is, and, I, and I'm a big believer in the power of teachers and educators to bring out the best. So I would say that was fortunate that in primary school had one particular teacher that, you know, kind of tapped into my sort of like rebellious energy and sort of opened um, my mindset. And then probably the same in secondary school as well, actually. So I really got into um, business studies. You know, business studies was just becoming popular as a subject um, when I was in school. And so when it was time to, you know, choose your GCSEs, chose business studies. And the teacher who she wasn't, she hadn't come through the traditional route. can't remember what her background was, but I'm going to say it was maybe um, administration or something. So she was our business studies teacher. And a group of us entered a competition. Um, gosh, this really takes me back. But a few of us entered a competition to kind of almost like come up with a business idea. And we, you know, went quite far in this competition. And it was teachers like that that kind of saw something, you know, they they saw something about you and they would pull that out. But my experience, unfortunately, of being in school and the school environment is that those teachers are often in the minority. And a lot of the teachers really are just trying to put you in that box. And if if you step out of that box, you then become too too difficult to manage, you know, and then you're always in the in the head teacher's office to be put on report, <laughs> you know, which is where I unfortunately occasionally found myself. <laughs> yeah. Curious we're thinking that because I think about you not wanting to be in a box. You wanted to push against the system. But then you went into chartered accountancy. I'm a yeah. I'm a reformed accountant in the world. So <laughs> When I think about things you can go into, which are very constrained, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, yeah, and I think there was um there was maybe a bit of a method to the madness, you know. Because here's the thing: so when I when I was younger, there was a there was a show that I really loved. Um, I think you're a little bit too young to remember this, but there was a show called um, Sir John Harvey Jones Troubleshooter, and he used to go into failing businesses. And he used to basically turn them around. He was a little bit like um, Gordon Ramsay, but for failing businesses. So, you know, so he would go in. It was quite brutal. Often it was like family-run businesses. And he would go in. And I and I loved what he did. And I guess some of this was that, you know, going in and fixing things and improving things. And, you know, having that, that um, almost that vision, that peripheral vision or being able to connect, um, you know, sort of challenges and problems and solutions and all of that. And I sort of just saw, I kind of saw that I might be able to do that. So from a very young age, and we're talking like maybe 10, 11, I saw myself doing that in businesses and organizations. Very, very strange when I think it back through. So then in terms of my route to, to chartered accountancy, so when I was 14, um, it's time for work experience at school. And um, I was quite fortunate that the school that I was in and the time that I was at school this is something that the teachers would organize for you work experience you didn't rely on you know your parents having connections and all of that sort of stuff right because that that really does I think hold people back if they're not from certain backgrounds and haven't got that social capital right but um so I you know sort of told my teachers what I was interested in and somebody suggested a firm of accountants because I was good at math so you know so academically even though I was a rebel 
I was I was still quite good, you know. I kind of, you know, had a bit of a smart, so I was good at math. So somebody suggested that I go to a firm of accountants um, at fourteen, and I did, and it, and it went pretty well, you know. And I thought I could I can do this work, you know, I can do this work. Um, and then when it came time to you know sort of choosing a career, and for me this was after A levels because I didn't want to go to university. Too much of a rebel, too much of a rebel to stay in academia. So I was like, no, I'm not going to university. Um, so I started looking around for what I could do, and I found a few organisations that had, um, you know, accountancy schemes where you could join after A-levels, and EY was one of those, but EY at the time, probably because they were just post-recession and wanted to get trainees in for cheap, um, were taking on uh, trainees after A-level, and so that's why I went into it, but but I think, you know, at the time, some people were saying to me, oh, you know, accountancy is a good career, and ultimately, you can lead to you having your own practice or your own business and whatever, so I think there was one eye on that, you know, there was almost this this longer term vision that maybe was buried at the back of my mind in terms of actually this can open doors for you in this whole world of business. And that's why I ended up going into it. But I, you know, your point around it's a very constrained environment, um, I think is, is quite true. I, I probably, I would argue that certainly at the time EY was perhaps slightly more down to earth than the other ones. I know at the time, some of the other big, it was a big six when I first started. Uh, that's how old I am. Um, in some of them, some of the partners, you know, you had to call them Mr. Such and Such, right? Whereas EY was pretty down to earth. The partners would come out on the audit. You know, they would roll their sleeves up and make the teas and coffees for even the most junior people in the team. So so that was, you know, a big part of my sort of professional grounding um, being at EY. Yeah. And I think that's that time then. You're in the... EY system, it's a great, sounds like it's a great, very, very different environment when I think about what EY was now. <laughs> like when I, went, when I went in there and I did some work in there, it was, yeah, you definitely not getting partners coming to make teas and coffees. You hardly ever saw them anyway. But <laughs> maybe it's just my office. Maybe it's just my office. Maybe it's a Birmingham thing, right? Birmingham's quite, <laughs> Birmingham people are quite down to earth anyway, I feel. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it like uh, you navigating that as black women in the early 90s in that kind of environment? Was it hard? Was it easy? Did you have a lot of help and support around you or did you, were you just doing it by yourself? Do you know what's really interesting? Um, so I joined at 19, you know, so I joined after my A-level, so I joined at 19. And the one thing I would say, actually, I would say that I, I had more self-confidence when I walked in those doors at 19 than I did probably at 30 from a court. I know, I know this sounds weird, but, but the thing is, and this is probably because of um, some of the, you know, I'd, I'd sort of had my expectations raised of, of what I could achieve from, you know, some really pivotal sort of teachers in my you know sort of during school and so I there was an element of there was an element of self-confidence and self-belief that I think you know you sometimes see in young people now they don't necessarily have all of the answers but there's a level of self-confidence so I so I definitely walked into EY with some of that um and it takes a while then for the corporate system to beat that out of you almost but when you first start you know I was quite sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and um, 
I was like, you know, let's do this. And to be fair, the, the environment that I found, certainly in that Birmingham office, that was my home office, um, was relatively supportive. Apart from when I failed my first set of exams, right? Then the reality of being a trainee accountant hit home very quickly, right? Because I think, because um, I, as I said, I'd always been quite good at exams. And I think I sort of thought, this is going to be a breeze. Um went into my first set of exams and um, and I got a referral. So for those people that know, it means that in that particular stage, which say there are four papers, you pass three of them and the fourth one you fail marginally, right? And I was like really shocked. And then the head of training at EY at the time said to me, because I'd also gotten married, right, by this time, because I got married quite young. She said to me, she said, are you sure you don't want to just, just stay at home and be a housewife? <laughs> That's what she said to me. And I was like, you've got to be kidding. And, um, you know, went back into the um, exam. I obviously had to retake the exam. Um, completely aced it. I think I was just, I just wasn't putting enough effort in at the start. I just wasn't, you know, I just thought I could just go in and breeze through these exams. Anyone that's done chartered accountancy exams knows that they are not easy, right? They are not, they um, are not easy. So I went, went back in and, and did those exams. But, um there is definitely something about the corporate system. Yeah, it will, you know, within my first couple of years, I was told, for example, that I dressed too loudly. Um, yeah, all kinds of things. So it, it does, it definitely does eat away at your confidence. You have to be a fairly strong character to survive. And certainly, yeah, and being female under colour, there were lots of women, lots of women in the office, but there weren't many women of colour in the office so being from that sort of background you know working class background single parent mom all of those sorts of things um it can it can be challenging and you know part of the reason that i wrote the book with that title of you know how to get ahead when you're the only blank in the room so you know you imagine you join these these large very sort of grand organizations and you go on lots of management conferences training courses all of that and you you must have experienced this shopper but the amount of times when you go to a conference or something and there are easily four, five, six, seven, eight hundred people in the room. And for me, back then in the 90s, I could literally be the only black person in that room, apart from the waiting staff and the servers. Like that was not unusual at all. I think it, and in terms of how I navigated that, I just I didn't focus on it, to be honest. At the time, I did not focus on it. And. I do think that there's a power in that, actually, because when you focus on it too much, it starts to, it really can derail you. You know, you kind of, um, you take your mind off kind of getting the job and all of that done. You start to focus on what's going on around you um, and you start to sort of like not deliver your best because you think that everybody's there to trip you up because you're not like them. Do you know what I mean? So for me, one of my strategies in the corporate space and I, something I talked about in my book was just just get your head down and just deliver your best work you know that was my coping mechanism basically and was it that you realized you talk about 90 year old you to 30 year old you and there's a difference in confidence and growth when was it that you realized that I'm going to say corporate had beaten something out of you that you used to have I don't think I realised, probably not until I hit 40, which I know sounds weird. There's a 20, I think there's probably a 20 year stint where you kind of, you know, I probably sort of spent the first 10 years almost like finding my feet, delivering all of that sort of stuff. But what you don't realise is happening at the same time 
um, you know, the way you speak is probably changing, right? The way you dress is changing because you're, you're doing all of these things to fit in and be acceptable, especially, you know, to your point around the big four, you know, if we call it the, you know, EY, PWC, uh, Deloitte, KPMG, etc. Um, you know, certainly back in the day, there's a certain mould, right? So over that time, you know, you are, even if you don't think that you are consciously doing them, you will be doing them, you know. So by the time I hit sort of like 30, early 30s, when I think back to it now, and I left EY when I was about like sort of 26, 27, but by the time I left, so I said to you, you know, that in the first couple of years I, I was at EY, I was pulled up for dressing quite loudly, right? By the time I'd left EY, suited and booted every day, cufflinks every day, right? And literally shirts, you know, start shirts, but, you know, you couldn't, you know, that that was my look, that became my look because I'd, I'd obviously, you know, sort of like internalised it and, and I'd then chosen that almost like a corporate armour to wear, you know, um, and, and it's those little things and even, you know, the way that I spoke probably was very different to the 19-year-old that had joined, even though I kind of pretty much lived in, you know, roughly the same sort of area. Do you know what I mean? But you don't realise it at the time because it happens quite gradually. But the reason I say that it probably wasn't until 40 that I realised, by the time I'd, I'd hit 40, so I'd been now in the corporate space, you know, out of um, chartered accountancy, but in the corporate space for a while. And I think there's something about, you know, when you turn 40, and when you've got like a track record behind you of deliberately of delivery, you just sort of decide, well, I sort of just decided, um, I know my stuff, you know, I, I thought I literally said to myself, you know what you're doing. And and I was in a I was in a workplace at the time where going into a lot of boardrooms and I used to go into a lot of boardrooms to present, you know, projects and programs and how things should be and, you know, present business cases and all of that. And I would often often face a lot of challenge, like a lot of challenge, right? Um, you know what boardrooms can be like. They can be pretty bruising, right? And I got to forty and I just thought I'm not taking this anymore. <laughs> I just thought I'm not taking it. Like I know my stuff. Like I know my stuff. I know that some of the individuals that come into the boardroom that want to like, you know, take a pot shot at me, they're not doing it because I don't know my stuff. They're doing it because um, I don't look like them. And actually sometimes they almost like want to bolster their allegiance to that group by, by pointing me out and trying to find my weaknesses. Right. Yeah, so I, so it kind of that, that it just started to click. I think there was just a level of awareness, you know, being slightly older, was able to just kind of stand back a little bit and, you know, and observe and realise what was happening. So yeah, there was a little bit more awareness, I think. And also, I'd done a couple of roles that were quite pivotal in my career, where I'd learned a lot more about how people operate in boardrooms um, that that really stood me in good stead. Yeah. I'm curious now. What what role yeah. was it that <laughs> allowed you to to really understand how people operate in those environments? Because I think that's something that a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, as I say, because of the sort of work that I was doing. So, so there was a, a stage in my career where I started to transition from finance roles to projects and programs and change management. So often there was stuff around you know, preparing a business case and a rationale and why are we doing this and all of that stuff, right? So I started to get more exposure to boardrooms and senior leaders and all that sort of thing. 
But when I was around, what age was I? I must have been about 35, I want to say. Um, I did a role. Um, so these new roles came up um, where you were working directly for the CEO. So I'd been in this company for a few years, um, and these roles came up, and they were seen as like development opportunities. And I was working directly for the CEO. I won't say which company it is, but if people go through my LinkedIn, they'll, they'll probably figure it out. <laughs> working directly for the CEO um, on various things, you know, various strategic projects and all kinds of things. But what it meant was, um, and it was a, you know, a kind of 8,000 people organization. But what, what that meant was going into all of the boardroom, boardroom, board meetings, um, you know, seeing how things operate, um, yeah, really seeing how things get done, seeing people get fired, you know, very senior people get fired. Um, I'll never forget the once one evening being at the office when um, somebody came in, one of the directors, and their pass, it was about seven o'clock in the evening, their pass wouldn't work, and it's because they were getting fired. And, um, and uh, you know, so just seeing how how people navigate boardrooms um, at a very senior level taught me a lot. It really taught me a lot. And it's something that now when I'm now mentoring people in particular that are trying to get into boardrooms or trying to get those promotions and they're really struggling to have influence, um, you know, those those skills that I saw of how people navigate in boardrooms were just invaluable. Even in terms of the work that I did after that, you know, supporting organisations and being able to influence and just understanding how things get done, just invaluable. Yeah. One of the biggest lessons I've definitely learned being in those environments is recognizing that these are people who are also as flawed and insecure as you are. Absolutely. And when you go in there with this, what I call this hero halo kind of complex, it reduces and diminishes your power. But when you can recognize that, and these, these people don't have it figured out, they've got their own stuff, their own issues. And if I can step, step into my authenticity, then actually helps me be a lot more assured and a lot more affirmed in my communication kind of with them. I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned. Yeah. It sounds like you, you gain a lot of that as well in that environment. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the humanity, you know, because what you're talking about there is really just the humanity of everybody. It doesn't matter what level they're at, you know, it doesn't matter how senior they, they are, they're still human. And those you know, one of the things I always say is you've got to really think about those people that are sitting around the board table, what's their agenda? You know, so if you're trying to influence them, what's their agenda? You know, what concerns have they got? Um, a lot of them just are trying to survive in the boardroom. You know, their peers have got the knives out for them uh, or they just they want to support people that are going to make them look good. You know, there's all sorts of things and it's the more you can understand the humanity, I think, like you were saying, the more you can understand the humanity of the people in the boardroom and connect with them on a human level, the better off you will be. Honestly, the, the amount of people that um, seem to think that the way to get on in corporate is to just get your head down and do your work and you'll get noticed. I can't, the amount of times I keep telling them, the reality is, and we've seen it, unfortunately, like in the news, and it doesn't matter how good you are at your role, particularly if you are from an ethnic minority background, um, it doesn't matter how good you are in your role. If you cannot build relationships with people and get people on your side, it's game over. <laughs> it's game over. I'm sorry to say it, but that is the reality of it because we're dealing with humans, right? These are human 
people and they've got their own challenges and their own agendas and you've got to you've got to be able to um you know to uh to create relationships that said I say the the opposite when I'm working with organizations so when I'm working with the organizations I say to the leaders you've got to make the effort to reach into your organization and make relationships with the people that will find it more difficult to connect with you right so it's slightly different um, advice depending on whether I'm talking to the organization or whether I'm talking to the individual. Yeah, I, I can agree with that because it's things harder to do for some people as well to be able to connect. And I say as a leader, you build trust and how yeah. you build trust is by reaching across the aisle, as that's what you yeah. like to say, and actually start to yeah. connect with people. Yeah. Um, but then you spent what, 20 years roughly in corporate environments, several blue chip organizations, finance, to consultancy, to project management, to so many different things that you were doing. And then you decide to go into entrepreneurship and like soup soup to nuts and all the different bits and pieces. It seems like a very, it's a pivot. (laughs) So big pivot. It sounds like from what you were doing previously. How come? Yeah, it it was kind of always in the plan, like it was always in the plan. So my my journey out of corporate was, first of all, I became an interim, so for, which is it, probably a, quite a common step. So I became an interim running big projects and programs. So when I was doing that, I was still doing that in like a self-employed capacity, wanting to kind of, you know, go in and change and improve things. So that was the first step to kind of like moving out. But but you're right in terms of I was still doing things on the side. You know, I was running a women's network. I was getting involved in projects. I was running a film festival, you know, for a couple of years. All kinds of all kinds of things, um, you know, that I'd get involved with. But, um, yeah, it was always in my plan to kind of be, be my own, be my own boss, I guess, really, you know, working for myself, but still helping organizations. So if you think back to that young child that was watching those, those programs, you know, that trouble that was going into organizations. I think that that always was kind of part of the the, the vision. And I think even when I did my MBA, so I did my MBA in my 20s, like late 20s, um, I always had that view of, you know, I see myself as a consultant going into firms, like helping them with whatever their their challenges are, right? And so, you know, that that's kind of where I've ended up basically is is effectively going into organizations I think it's probably just that the subject matter has changed so when I was an interim going in and running projects and programs I was really leaning on my niche which was finance finance transformation so going and running big transformation programs but then when I wrote the book and I really did a lot of self-reflection um you know reflecting on well how did I achieve that you know as a as a black woman how did I achieve that what were the secrets to kind of like navigating and getting up to those boardroom roles and really start to delve into the world of D&I in terms of what holds people back? What holds people back like me? What, why is it that some people do well and some people don't? That almost then just like naturally sort of started to be the thing that people wanted me to talk about, if that makes sense. So coming up to around sort of 2018, 19, you know, a lot of people started saying, you know, can you talk about your experiences? How did you do that? what is it that organizations can do better, which kind of just, you know, sort of morphed into the world of where I am now, I guess. But I still, there is still something about, you know, and you said at the top of the 
core in terms of my board work, my trustee work, um, I am just still really passionate about how organisations work, you know, and how to get the best out of them. So, but that for me is my challenge of what do I curate? You know, what do I focus on? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means there it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcasts, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. Is that why then you get involved with so many different things because you said right at the start that you want to yeah. slow down a bit more this year but yeah. you're you're everywhere like i'm yeah <laughs> omnipresent and Cheryl is everywhere awards NED roles trustee roles running your own business and organization yeah. the property stuff there's, there's so much stuff that you do yeah so why now why are you feeling like you need to kind of just reduce some of that and I guess create more space or create more time do you know what I think there's something about and I was listening to somebody talking about this yesterday on a podcast when we go through these different phases in like creating our ideal life you I think you do naturally have these phases of exploration where you start to try your hands at a few things and then you curate it back then you're able to then focus and you focus it back down and and I think that's probably just the phase that I mean. So I'm in my post corporate phase, um, and I've been doing a little bit of explorating, and I've been you know doing a little bit of non exec work, and I've been doing some board trustee stuff, and some of it is just that I struggle to say no, right? <laughs> some of it's just that. But I but I'm now in that phase of I'm curating because I'm I'm now I feel as I'm moving into now another chapter of my life not that I'm like I'm not retiring yet anybody I'm not yet that old but I feel as I'm moving into another chapter where when I think about my my five-year goal and I've now got some real clarity over what my five-year goal is and I know that I need some focus to get there I'm really clear about what it is um, and I need some focus to get there and actually if anybody were to look at my LinkedIn profile even if you go now you will see actually that I've started to to close down some of those things so towards the end of last year I started to curate I um I used to judge I used to judge for um a number of awards but I used to judge for one particular award I won't say um which one it is and last year I decided that I wasn't going to judge for it anymore so they reached out to me they said oh you know judging is about to start um you know let us know if you know if you're on board I actually didn't get around to replying to say I'm not officially going to be judging and then they kept chasing me <laughs> to say you haven't logged in but I thought because I'm not judging (laughs) because I already knew that I'd made that very high profile award you know that's held down in the grove and they're very swanky over a thousand people but I was just like you know sometimes you have to look at is this thing serving me and and am I serving it in terms of where I am and I just thought this thing isn't serving me and I had another awards reach out to me last year and they were like oh, we love what you're doing. Da, da, da. I can't remember what the, the awards was even called, but it was like, we love what you're doing. And I looked at what they were about and I thought, yeah, they're lacking, they're actually lacking some diversity. <laughs> and I said, I think that's why they're really And again, I just, I didn't even have the time to reply. I was like, this isn't for me. 
so, so I'm starting to say no to a lot more things, a lot more things, honestly. You will be seeing less of, people will be seeing less of me um, because I'm really starting to focus in um, on one or two things that are really important. I'm, I'm moving out of my exploration era. I'm moving into my focus, you know, over the next few years, this is what you're going to see more of, yeah. Why do you think you struggled to say no before? Well, I think some of it is, you know, I, I, I don't want to blame it on my gender, but obviously, you know, as women, we are, as young girls, we are socialised to people please um, more so. And so I think some of it is that. Some of it is the things that I'm presented with are good causes. You know, they're good causes and you think actually... Um, you know, I've got skills that I can, and I can see how they can be used. I think some of it's ego, if I'm being completely honest. And I, I do think that's some of the reason that people struggle to say no. It's like, wh why do I believe that I'm the only person that can help this thing, right? This, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of other people with either more and or better skills. Why has it got to be me? <laughs> right? So I think some of it sometimes is ego. Um, yeah, yeah, that that's that's. That's some of it, definitely. And sometimes it's the um, ego linking into, sometimes we want the accolades of, I'm involved in this thing, you know. And I'm getting too old for that anyway. Like, I really am getting too old. For, honestly, I think I've just seen too much of it. I've seen too much of it. Um, I'm, I'm hanging on to LinkedIn by a thread because me and social media have got a strange relationship, you know. <laughs> I am 100% shocked to hear you <laughs> say that you social to read it. Because you're prolific. You're prolific on the platform. From the LinkedIn, listen, the LinkedIn lives you do on a regular. I'm like, I don't know the consistency. I'm like, I, I rate it from that to your content to the book club and stuff that you have. Yeah. So, how can yeah. you say that you have a strange relationship with social media? I'm very, very surprised. Social media has a lot to answer for, you know. Seriously. So here's the thing. So a few years ago, I decided I was coming off Facebook, came off Facebook, too, too, too angry and too negative. And, and for, unfortunately, the social media algorithms, this, if, if I could change one thing about social media, it would be the way that the algorithms amplify negativity. And, and disagreement it's just it's wrong and it's it's unhealthy that's my biggest issue with social media so a few years ago I left Facebook and then um not last year the year before I, I when I say I left in Instagram you'll still see a profile there and once in a blue moon I might post a a story of something something maybe just touches me and I feel like it's too personal for LinkedIn I might post it as a story but my last post on Instagram I think it was in 2023 um and you just won't you just you just won't see me there and LinkedIn the only reason I'm on LinkedIn is really more from a work and a business perspective and some of that is I think that you know in the work that I do around like inclusion and diversity I think that there are there is a need for more moderate voices and part of what if you're in this space, if you're doing this sort of work, part of what we're supposed to be doing is helping people figure out how to have difficult conversations, right, when everybody doesn't agree. 
and I almost feel that that I'm trying to bring that to LinkedIn. Part of the reason I like the LinkedIn lives and things like that is sometimes I feel that there isn't enough space for nuance and complexity. So when it's just posts and people are commenting and people are getting into arguments and all of that, there's not enough character sometimes in a post to do some of these topics justice. And that's why sometimes I'm like, I need to get somebody on and we need to have at least a half hour conversation to go into this thing. And sometimes, you know, I've had people sometimes comment on a LinkedIn live. I had the one guy comment, uh, a black guy once comment on a LinkedIn live um, that I did. And he was clearly he was he was irritated by something about that LinkedIn live. And so I connected with him offline and we had a conversation offline. And I would rather do that than be getting into getting into it and having some argument that goes nowhere where people just get annoyed on LinkedIn. That that's one of my biggest bugbears on LinkedIn. I cannot stand the um those arguments when people aren't even really listening to each other. And I actually just cannot stand it. And that's the one thing that's gonna run me off the platform is when I've had enough of that, then I'll be gone. One day you just won't see Cheryl on LinkedIn. <laughs> well I think you have a you have a good point around being a voice. A, a voice in a sea of noise is important, yeah. but it's also been able to do that and ensure that it's not at your detriment. Because like you said that, the noise, the negativity, the back and forth. Yeah. It's someone, I had a conversation with someone I'm talking about social media psychology behind it. I was like, mm. well, fundamentally it's feeding human behavior as, as crazy and as bad as it is. Yeah. People are more likely to root for someone's downfall than they are to root for someone to succeed. And it's absolutely crazy. And we see it play out, we see it with the rates yeah. of depression and different bits and pieces yeah. like that. Yeah. And that's what the algorithm feeds. And it feeds the nature that we've trained it to actually feed. So it's always great to have positive voices mm. like yours who are sharing something different, who are yeah. willing to take the time and be like, I'm not going to engage in that, but I can DM you, we can talk offline and have a yeah. proper conversation with someone. That's what's needed more and more of, but also recognize the, the weight and the impact that it can take and how it can drain someone like emotionally and mentally mm. in doing that on a regular basis. It's a, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunately, you know, it feeds, it, you're right in terms of it feeds human behavior and it feeds the worst of human behavior, unfortunately, because we kind of get into like, almost like survival mode you know we're in survival mode when we're behind that keyboard and that's why we don't like it when when somebody um argues with our perspective i'm the set you know if i post something and somebody comes to me because they disagree with it my instant reaction is to get my heckles up it is so human right but there's something in how we respond to that so i, I did a post um a few weeks ago, and it, it touched on, um, you know, something that's going on in the world right now, which is, you know, very topical. And, it, you know, it, it can, um, it, it can lead to people being very sort of like polarized. And I touched on it. And um, somebody from the US uh, commented on my post to correct my terminology. So I do, I'd said something about, um, you know, maybe people who are Muslims. And she had corrected the terminology to say, actually, it should be you know, maybe, you know, Arabs or, you know, whatever the, the point was. But um, my first response almost was, I mean, you'll never see me flat out 
kind of go toe-to-toe with something. You just won't see that, right? You'll you never see that happen. Um, because there, there's a way even to disagree with somebody um, on LinkedIn, even if you have a very different view, right? So my first response was um, kind of quite sort of glib and kind of almost like off the cuff and, and, and kind of like, okay, thanks, you know, cool, you know, noted. And I thought that's not the right response. So I kind of had a word myself. <laughs> and then I was more reflective and more respectful actually of her view so I just really sort of softened my tone kind of took it back kind of parked the ego a little bit put the chimp to the back and responded to and then I also dm'd her you know and we had an exchange and she was like you know I'm really sorry if it sounded like you know but we just had a really positive exchange that came out of it that was something that could have been could have really easily descended and spiraled into you know, over something that was quite minor, because the reality was we were kind of both on the same side, if that makes sense, right? It's just that she just had a slightly different take on one thing. And and isn't that life, though? A lot of life is there is a lot more middle ground and a lot more that we have in common. And unfortunately, when it comes to social media, sometimes we pick on that one little thing that we think is different, where that person didn't get also they didn't understand us and then we're going to go for that person that's what's wrong with it you know yeah i agree it's uh i would say you can't the same conversations said there are lots of conversations you just can't have on social media for sure however you also don't necessarily have the platform the spaces to be able to have them so it's like a chicken and an egg and i remember there's one of my some of the work i'm doing in new york now the person Mm -hmm. doing it with we met about four years ago because she said something that could be viewed something that was that was that was racist, mm-hmm. and we called her out on it. And we had this offline amazing conversation, and we became really good friends. And we was laughing for that. We looked back, look at how we actually met. If I had yeah. just leaned into like how dare you, da, 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 da. Yeah, it would never yeah. happened. But we had a very very great conversation to kind of unbid to understand, and it was a teach moment for her, for me, because it was, I mean, it was like. Hey, there's other part is like I can see what you're trying to say, but I don't think you said it right. Let me let me let me lean to my curiosity and find out, and then have yeah. a conversation and lead to something else. Yeah. And that's what I think you do really really well. But it's also missing in a lot of spaces, social media generally, but a lot of spaces that we end up operating in, which is which is sad, unfortunately. It is, and you know we were kind of saying before we uh, jumped on air that it's. The thing that makes me the most sad, and in fact, in a, in a post this morning, I reached out to um, a, a DNI thought leader who I really respect actually in this space, and said, you know, maybe some of us need to come together and and have these conversations around how we do this, because even in the in the space around you know diversity and inclusion, there are a lot of people that, when it comes to that calling out, as it's sometimes called, or calling in, as it's now sometimes called as well, we don't always do it with the grace that it needs you know and and that's that's a problem that that's a problem unfortunately and as much as I hate to say it but I do think that there is something about the way that inclusion is being practiced you know as a profession as a discipline that is contributing to the backlash so the backlash and this anti-DI wave at the moment is there for a number of reasons you know people are people don't want to give up power let's just call it as it is let's just call a spade a spade some of it is they don't buy into the business case for various reasons. It could be that there are these 
um, you know, these biases that are buried so low that they haven't even surfaced them, that they still have a view that, you know, people that are from certain backgrounds just ain't as smart as whatever, right? Those things are still there. But some of it is, you know, sometimes in this DNI space, people can't do right for doing wrong. Whatever they say is wrong. <laughs> you know, whatever they say, they're going to have um, some DNI influencer calling them out and dragging them through the mud and taking a screenshot of this message they sent them in private and posting it on LinkedIn. You know what I mean? It's like, that's got to stop. That has got to stop in this space. It's like, it's just not how, um, it's, it's not doing our profession any good, you know, at all. It's got to stop. What keeps you going then with everything you've seen, the backlash that's that's come that we knew was going to happen and has has landed especially in the last 18 months to two years and with what we just described and just talked about right now with calling out calling in that and people not being able to actually feel safe in a space that should be actually safe and being open and inclusive and equitable which is complete opposite of that in a lot of times what keeps you going still I think, do you know what? I think part of the problem, and I, I will say it's a problem, the, the genie is out of the bottle, if that makes sense. And what I mean by that is the expectations now of, especially our young people going into organisations, is that they will be treated fairly, you know, that they will be treated fairly, that they will have access to opportunity. And also, um, unfortunately, you know, people are now more aware of, discrimination or non-inclusive behavior so the genie's out the bottle right if you if you really rewind 30 or 40 years people were kind of just getting on with it they knew that things weren't fair etc but they were just like this is the way things are we, we just get on with it you know we we live with it and we make do now young people are like i'm not going to make do like i'm not going to make do you know I, I expect organizations to live up to a certain standard so so that's why i say the genie's out of the bottle the problem is out there and it's got to be dealt with. So just because Musk says, you know, Elon Musk says the I must die, it's not going to die because the genie's out of the bottle. <laughs> it's, um, it's too big. So actually, you know, um, as much as there is um, backlash and, you know, obviously the backlash is very much being supported by individuals that weren't on the bus anyway. You know, they're like, well, you know, I told you that this was an issue, etc. There are still a lot of organisations that, want to do the right thing and and more importantly actually one of the reasons that i've really started listening to and supporting uh employee net employee-led networks and employee resource groups is because they are now at the vanguard trying to do this work from the inside out potentially now faced with leadership teams that are kind of like wavering and flip-flopping and um this works it's not going away this work is not going away. it's been around this work has been around a lot longer than elon musk has <laughs> so it's not going anywhere um and it will still need doing you know and i still and a, a bit like you a bit like you you know we we still get um inquiries from people and people you know that have challenges in this space so yeah maybe it's maybe it's brave maybe it's stupid but you know we're still here and the the piece of encouragement comes from also being to see people like in the Moscow so DM with Danai. Then you have other people like Mark Keaton. They'd be like, actually yeah, no, exactly. it's great. And <laughs> yeah. so you, at least you have some people at that level who are fighting yeah. and then you have people at other levels like the work that you're doing 
um, which I th actually think is quite empowering because being able to mm -hmm. empower um, groups internally, ERG groups, yeah. network groups internally to be able to connect properly with the leader because they, they have the full context yeah. and to empower them in a way yeah. to lead from the inside out. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely priceless. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, I'm curious if you're, if you're willing to share, you say you're doubling down next five years, you've got clarity now. What is your focus then? I don't want to reveal too much. Do you know, i tell you why I don't want to reveal too much. You know, I did a post. I don't usually do shady posts. <laughs> I don't usually post any shade on LinkedIn. But I had a call last week, you know, with um, with somebody. And um, they had got wind of something that I was doing. And they literally were trying to warn me off doing that thing. Like, I kid you not, Chopin. Like, I was in shock. They were literally trying to warn me off. They were like, well, you know, we've got X, Y, and Z resources and, you know, we can do it. And I just thought, and I, I've actually reached out to that individual because somebody had suggested that they would be good to collaborate with, right? But when I reached out to them and this individual had fed back to them what they were doing, they then came with the energy of, you know, get your tanks off my lawn sort of thing. Do you know, mm. I was really surprised. Um, so, and then when I fed it back to somebody else that I'm doing the work with, she said, this is why you must do your work in the dark. <laughs> but no, I'm leaning more into the space of, um, for those that know me, you know, I've been running, um, retreats, uh, for a few years. So I'm, I'm very much into, um, in-person immersive experiences to bring about transformation. I'm a big believer in, you know, if you can get people out of their day-to-day -day environment, um, and really, you know, create a space where they can learn and have some serious self-reflection and introspection. Um, I, I believe that it's where the magic happens. And so that's my focus is going to be on more um, immersive experiences to transform. That's all I'm saying <laughs> over the next few years. So people we'll, see more we'll, of we'll. that. And it's something that started before that I started doing before the pandemic. So people see more of it going forward. Yeah. However, I will say this, that is something that I can 100% say that is needed and there's not a lot of it. Because yeah. there's nothing as powerful as being able to take people out of their current environment to different environments for a space of yeah. time to get that clarity, to get that connection, yeah. to build that community and to take them through a different way of thinking yeah. that they come out and they're like, yep, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know how I'm going to lead. I know I'm going to navigate whatever yeah. challenges I'm having as an individual yeah. might be for their company. It's yeah. such a powerful, powerful experience. Yeah. I've been led off site experiences for yeah. a number Absolutely. of years. So Absolutely. Yeah. I'm doing, so I'm doing, um, like I'm doing some training for these employee led network leaders, ERG leaders. And I'm, it's interesting. Um, so I've been, I've been running retreats for a little while, but the training that I'm doing for these ERG leaders, I've called it residential training. I was kind of, I wish I'd been bolder because I was, I was, I should have just called it a retreat, a leader's retreat. But I sort of thought, oh no, you know, companies won't want to invest in what effectively is a retreat for leaders that aren't senior enough to be going off, you know, on hikes up the mountain and whatever. But it's really interesting because now I look across the pond and in the States, um, there are there are retreats for employee network leaders and and it's important that it's called that because actually the emotional toll you know when you're doing this sort of work and the emotional toll on those employees many of whom are volunteering to do this on top of their day job is massive right so there's nothing wrong with it being called a retreat and i wish i kind of stuck to my guns but hey ho we live and learn maybe next time it'll be called 
uh, a retreat. Yeah. Next time I will be. I believe you will. That's yeah. what it is. Call it. Call it. Call it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I yeah, I need to stick to my guns. Yeah. Why is it? You recognize that a lot of people learn from our experiences more than what we say. Why is it that you don't spend that much time talking about your experiences and what you have done, what you've achieved and accomplished when a lot of people can learn more from you? Do you know what it is? So I, and so, so when I came off Instagram, um, I used to, on Instagram, I'd started doing something where I would, on my daily walks, I used to um, walk sort of typically through like forests and stuff. I kind of, where I live is a little bit um, kind of like rural. And so on my daily walk, I used to record like a little video thing of, you know, just something like a bit encouraging or something that's maybe happened to me that day or that week or whatever. I, I'm happy to share like about me and my experiences, um, but I'm conscious that sometimes it can be helpful, but sometimes not so helpful if that makes sense because I think sometimes people look at you from the outside and I think sometimes because they only see what I sometimes call the show reel right they just see you know me on this podcast and they look at my list of you know corporate achievements or whatever and sometimes I don't know whether it helps or hinders that that's what I would say like genuinely um and so when I wrote the book, you know, if anybody, you know, you don't have to go out and buy the book, but in my book, I talk a lot about a lot of the struggles and the challenges of my experiences. But I guess it's just maybe a personal preference that I don't want to, like, be airing that every week on social media. I'm just not, I, I, I'm not a big fan of, well, for starters, I'm not a big fan of trauma dumping. So I'm not a big fan of, um, I'm going to, like, attract you know, likes and popularity by saying, oh my gosh, you know, my child was, was so terrible and this, that and the other happened. You know, I, I don't do all of that. Um, and nor do I want to be that individual that is saying, oh yeah, I got through X, Y, Z and you can do it too. And, but it's just, it's just not my style. It really just isn't my style. I'm happy to share those lessons from the small everyday moments, but not, um, you know, not, not kind of a big, sort of life reveal thing you know it's just it's just not me it's not me but I did I did do it in the book so if anybody wants to know more about you know more about kind of the inner workings of Cheryl you can get it in the book Machine stereotypes have to get ahead we dash in the room it's available on when Amazon. you're the only blank uh, Amazon and other platforms <laughs> available to you make sure to buy the book ignore her buy the book so yeah that then completely agree by the fact that not trauma dumping how do people then when people say that people connect with people rather mm -hmm. than connecting with brands people connect with people who are real who are yeah. authentic how do you then advise people who do want to connect with other people but don't necessarily want to lead into trauma dumping don't necessarily want to be talking yeah. about themselves on a regular basis how do they begin to build the right networks and the right connections of people yeah. if they say they want to get on boards <laughs> and be called out the way that all, of the, all these different people mm. that you said no to are calling you how do people actually do that in an authentic way then i i think well the key there you said in an authentic way and i think it has to be authentic and i think it has to be natural so i think there's something about you know the whole um like brene brown vulnerability and all of that sort of thing i think it's almost 
led to some people having the view of, oh, yeah, on social media, you've got to share more of your challenges and almost like in a formulaic sort of way. And I'm just, I'm just not here for that. Like, I'm just not going to do that. Um, I will sometimes share if I'm feeling vulnerable. So I will talk about, um, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to share them now because I almost feel as though I've been like lulled into them. But I will, to say, for example, if it's, you know, if there's stuff about, say, you know, the windrush, I might share about, you know, my grandparents, um, you know, coming from the Caribbean and, you know, my mom's upbringing and all of those sorts of things. Or if it's Mental Health Awareness Day, then I'll share about the fact that, you know, I've got lived experience of individuals in my family with mental health and I'll share those things. So if I think that there is a moment where it's authentic and it's natural and it makes sense to do it for that reason, then I'll do it. But I'm not doing it just because, just because, you know, people are seem more human when they share more of themselves. Because to me, that's inauthentic. And I, I, what's really interesting, I went to an event recently, a networking event, and it was the first time I'd been to this event. And um, one of the things that people did for a lot of people, it was their first time, and there was it, there was almost like a theme to it. You know, there was a theme. I won't share what the theme is because some people might figure out what event it was. Um, but people were basically then sharing, you know, a little bit on the theme. And also they were making like a want and an offer, you know, after they'd spoken. And it was incredibly intense because people were sharing like, people were sharing like they were at their therapist. Like, I'm not even kidding you. And I'm not like session one of the therapist, like, like a therapist that they'd been at for years. And so I left the session with a headache for one because it was on zoom so that was even harder but i just thought there is something about sometimes that desire to create connection and force it right and you can then end up with something that's actually quite inauthentic and you're revealing so much of yourself to try to create this connection when it's when it's actually not genuine you know in the search for the connection and so that's that's just that's just not me. That really is just not me. Um, but you know, but I do share quite a lot of myself. For people that know me, you know, if you if you know me and we've had those conversations, I I can share quite a lot of myself. And actually, if you were probably to look at like a week or or two weeks of posts, you will definitely see glimmers of me. You will definitely see glimmers of things that are going on, the ups, the downs, the challenges. Um, but I don't do these big trauma dump posts. You'll never see that from me. Yeah. It's been the, what would you say has been one of the most pivotal lessons that you've learned, either in 20 plus years in corporate or running your own business and being a founder in multiple things for really not another what, 15, 20 plus years on top of that. What's been one of the biggest lessons you've learned? Um... Gosh, there are there are so there are so many lessons. I'd I'd probably say um, I mean the, the the learning to say no is is a big one for me, and it's a lesson that I'm still learning because I think there's learning to say no, but also learning which what things you you need to say yes to, and not closing yourself off to opportunity, like saying yes to this podcast, right? Because I because in my mind I think I was saying no for a long time. Um, but I think for me, you know, life, I was thinking about, um, when I was thinking about this conversation, you know, life, I think is a little bit like, so I, I like to run, or I used to like to run before my knees started to kind of like protest too much, right? So I like to run. 
and um, I think life is like running or if you cycle you know it's like being on a bike um, and it's a very long journey you know it's either like a like you're running a marathon or, or an ultra or a really long race and I think you have we all have headwinds and we all have tailwinds like everybody does everybody has things in their life regardless of your background regardless you know we talk about privilege and things like that but everybody has tailwinds you know things that have helped them along whether it be an individual but also everybody has you know sort of headwinds you know things that are blowing against them um and for me the the one key thing is to just really to just really keep focused on you know on your own journey and just cycling or running forwards and just to kind of keep going I almost think we spend too long focusing either on the headwinds you know the challenges and saying oh because I'm black or because I'm female or because I'm this you know I don't have the same opportunities as that person everybody has the tailwinds and the headwinds and I actually think just keep focusing on your own journey and ultimately you'll get there you know you'll be okay and just and enjoying the journey and that's that's what it's all about for me that is what it's all about i love that i love that because it also gives you that ownership is back on you yeah that yes it's not going to be easy yes you might have your yeah. challenges but actually fundamentally it's still down to you yeah you your mindset mentality and your approach absolutely absolutely and you know and part of the reason when I when I wrote the book I think um the mindset that I was in I think because I was coming off the back of my corporate career you know the first the first chapter in that book um says uh the first chapter is called don't focus on discrimination and it's because and you know when I talk about the genie being out of the bottle I think there is there is a danger that we've now created an environment where young people particularly young people, you know, from certain backgrounds, there might be LGBTQ+, plus. there might be, um, you know, sort of like non-white backgrounds. We've become so hypersensitive now to discrimination that we almost let it, let it stop us. We let it stop our progress when the reality is they're just, they're just headwinds, right? They're just headwinds, regardless of what headwinds there are. You can still get on that bike or get out on that road and you can run or you can pedal, right? We cannot allow those headwinds, whatever they are, to get in our way. And I, and you know, I, I just can't stress that enough. We've got to take more individual agency and responsibility for our own success. We can't blame, you know, our success or our failures on on other people. How do you define leadership? How do I define leadership? Oh. I define leadership as, um, if I was being really technical, I would define it, uh, I would define it as, um, as being able to influence others, being able to influence other people to do something, right, is how I would define it technically. In terms of what I've seen good leadership look like, oh, I've had the privilege to work with some amazing leaders like genuinely some amazing leaders. It's probably the, it's the one thing we didn't talk about actually, but in my corporate career, I have worked for some amazing leaders, for people who recognize that they didn't know everything, that they weren't the smartest people in the room. Um, so when it came to, for example, to board meetings and presentations, they would be actively listening because they would genuinely feel, you know, this individual that we brought in to present to us, even if they're two levels below in the organization 
they are the experts in this thing, right? So leaders that acknowledge that they don't don't know everything, um, I think is is it is almost everything really. Um leaders who have a real healthy and respectful curiosity, I think is is key. Absolutely key because I think that leads to connecting genuinely and authentically with other people in a way that it's hard to describe. So some of the best leaders that I've seen, like just just genuinely, you know, and respectfully curious of other people and what other people have been through. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've worked for some amazing leaders, some amazing leaders in, in the corporate space. That's probably why I lasted this long in corporate, <laughs> right? Because, um, you know, I, I consider myself very fortunate. I've, I've worked for some shocking bosses, don't get me wrong. I've worked for some terrible people, but I've worked for some really good ones as well. It's always a, I would say it's always a blessing to be able to have examples of both. So you know yeah. what good looks like and you yeah. know what bad looks like. And you have yeah. a, a reference that you can actually lean into. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's been really good. Yeah. yeah. And also there's something about the one thing I'd add actually, because I had the one boss who at one point I would have said he was the worst leader I'd ever worked for. Um, but actually we got to the point, we had to have a very difficult conversation and, and it took a lot for me to say, we don't work well together. Like our staff don't work. Like he'd asked me to stay on and do some projects. And I was like, I don't know if I can work with you because our staff just don't work. And we had a really frank conversation about our working styles. We ended up being really good friends. And so there's something about, I think, Leadership also takes followership as well. And particularly when you get to a certain level in your career, you know, if you've got the toolkit and you've got the bravery to have those conversations, have those conversations, you know, with your leaders, with your managers about what does and doesn't work for you. Um, you know, something that we can do as well, again, about taking responsibility for for your ride, you know, through for your journey through, through work and through life. I guess my last question to you there will be, is that young, curious, rebellious Cheryl back in full effect now? <laughs> um, I think so. I think, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not as rebellious because I don't need to be uh, rebellious anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the rebel part. Well, like, do you know what I say that? But then look at, you know, look at how I'm dressed and, you know, my hair and everything. It kind of comes out in in sort of very subtle ways, I think, um, the rebel does sort of slightly. Um, I'm definitely fully effect in terms of, you know, I'm always, I'm always 200%, like I'm always going at 200%. Um, and I am still now, you know, definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for just coming in and sharing the, I call it the real talk. I think there's, yeah. it's very easy for us to just, like you said, we see the, the the highlight rules of people doing doing different things, but there's a so much richness and substance to them, to their journey with how they're thinking. Mm -hmm. I think there's something around even what you're going through, which is demonstrating that you're constantly reassessing and focusing and reassessing and focusing. Yeah. You've had an amazing corporate career. You've had an amazing entrepreneurship career doing different things. And then we've got another one and everything that you're doing is just like intentionality is there, the focus is there. Now I know what it is. There might be some season of experimenting. Yeah. But it's getting people to recognize that life is not linear. 
life goes through the cyclical spaces and, and places and that's perfectly okay. And that's how you live life to the fullest. You don't have to just do one thing or stay stuck in one thing. And you're, exactly. the, you're the definition of, we showcased a great example of what that looks like. And even though we didn't touch on it, like you briefly mentioned, even an interview, like got married at 19. So you were able to still have a personal life, raise a family and do everything that you're doing. So it is possible. And I love, I love that as a great example. And you and already know, I told you already, you're a great role model as well. So thank you very much for oh, today in this interview. You. Thank you so much. Yeah. And you know, and I, I'm, I'm not perfect by, by any stretch. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it is possible. It is possible. You just have to, you have, it does, it definitely takes that focus, you know, ex, explore, have that exploration, have that creativity, but at some point you, you've got to kind of focus in on, on the thing, but no, thank you Shope for, um, for this conversation. This is Eridelia Shep. We'll see you all next week. you're still recovering from that amazing conversation let me give a quick preview of what we got coming up next week make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out i've learned from that right at one stage i used to get angry but now i learn from that i smile i mark you and i continue because you can't steal my joy right the excellence that was putting me from a fantastic woman is what has helped me to thrive and then through that there's lots of purpose, right? There's lots of great relationships. There's lots of great opportunity. And all of that greatness stemmed from a woman who saw an opportunity, and I repeat, it was birthed out of sacrifice.